Comics. Movies. Music. Video games. Technology. Blu-ray. Television. This is the HHW LOD Podcast Network. together from remote galaxies are some of the most sinister podcasters of all time the long box of doom dedicated to a single objective the conquest of the comic book universe Hey everybody, welcome back to Fantastic February. It's the Long Box of Doom episode, episode 257. I'm Jordan from Jersey, and I'm joined by Russell Latham and Jim Dietz. How are you guys doing tonight? Is it Fantastic February, or is it Fantastic February? Oh, uh, I see what you did there, but I don't approve. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That is certainly a phrase. You're my brother from another mother, but I can't go with you on that one, buddy. I'm sorry. I'll stick with Fantastic February. This is a path you must travel over. <laughs> Do not bring your evil to my village. Couldn't resist. So, in this episode, we're going to talk about Dark Rain, Fantastic Four, which is uh, five issues, and then the first couple issues of the of the Jonathan Hickman Fantastic Four run proper, uh, probably five seventy, uh, five seventy one, and five seventy two, uh, depending on how much time it takes. So, we're not going to go in depth as we might usually do on a book. We're going to do do more of a mid range level look at this because it's an awesome run, but it's kind of long. So. We don't want to be doing this for forever, as good as the run is, but uh, we still want to give it its due. Now, if you've already listened to our uh, Welcome to Fantastic February episode, you'll know that Jim and I already talked about our histories with the Fantastic Four uh, throughout media, but Russ was not there. So, Russ, what's your history with the Fantastic Four? When did you start reading them? What's your favorite runs, least favorite runs, that kind of stuff? I started reading from issue one and never stopped. No, I'm kidding. Not that old. I... <laughs> I... You know, like like we've talked about before, my comic reading experience started in the 80s, uh, knee-deep in the John Byrne run. So that's really where uh, my history with, with the team kind of comes in. And a lot of it is based on a couple crossovers. And the first crossover, I was at the time, I was reading, the, the books that I was reading pretty regularly were The Avengers, uh, X-Men, and a buddy of mine had... Uh, he he picked up New Mutants, and so he, but he didn't pick up X Men. So we would trade, and uh, I would read his his New Mutants issues, and he would read my X Men issues. So we both kind of keep up uh, with what was going on. Um, but in one of the Avengers annuals, they did a crossover with uh, with the Fantastic Four. It had to do with the Skrulls, and and it and it was it was before they did all of the annual crossover stuff, you know, where they had these big storylines. This was just a simple crossover between a Fantastic Four annual and the Avengers annual. Um, and for some reason, I don't think Byrne... Why do I think Byrne drew them both? But I don't I don't think he did. Um, but it, it, was, it was really cool. And so after reading that, I kind of started to get a little bit of exposure and a, and a bit of affinity for the Fantastic Four and, and just being a fan of John Byrne. Um, I started kind of getting issues here and there, especially ones that crossed over, uh, for all the, the bad press it gets, 
Secret Wars 2 was really kind of a gateway drug into the bigger Marvel universe for me. Uh, I, I, I know I've talked about this in the past, but... And, and how strange, not to get ahead of ourselves, that you would bring up Secret Wars 2, but since we will be touching on yeah. that in a surprising yes. way tonight. Yes, yes, yes. But I read a lot of cool different comics. Cause I was, I was, I kind of had the collector gene even back then, and so I, I had to kind of get everything, uh, you know, associated with it. I, I tried to do that with Crisis and, and some other things. Um, so I really started to pick up a bunch of Fantastic Four issues, and I really like Burns' take on it. I mean, the, the different costumes, you know, Sue Storm with the shorter hair, just, you know, there was a lot of conflict... Uh, on the team going on, it was it was a time when She-Hulk was on the team instead of Ben Grimm because it was right after uh, Secret War or Secret Wars. Uh, so I read kind of and it was hit or miss. Like I wasn't an avid reader of Fantastic Four then. I would just kind of you know pick up an issue here, pick up an issue there. If I happened to be at a comic shop and they had a few issues that were cheap, I would I pick those up. Um, and so really spotty. And then I kind of walked away from it for a while and. I don't think I really got Fantastic Four. I think the next time I got it was in the 90s. They did a stunt where they like, quote unquote, killed off Reed Richards and he was supposed to be dead forever, that kind of thing. Uh, and I picked those up. And then, of course, I got suckered into the whole Heroes Reborn, Heroes Return. Uh, so I got a lot of uh, those issues, uh, you know, back then. And it was kind of a fresh take on the Fantastic Four. You know, that was the whole point uh, for that. And then next, I guess I would say uh, I was a, I was a pretty big fan of the Ultimate Fantastic Four, which was a, a pretty wildly different take on the Fantastic Four, even more so than you know Heroes Reborn. Uh, and I collected that for a while, and it was a, it was pretty good, but it just kind of it just kind of got dull after a while. So after after kind of a brief stint with the Ultimate Fantastic Four, I kind of took a break from the FF until I guess it was really until the Miller Hitch stuff, and most of that I kind of read after the fact, and um, you know I picked up on on comic mixology most of it and then the hickman stuff i haven't read all of it but i've read the first i want to say maybe 10 or 12 maybe 14 ish issues somewhere somewhere around there i've read uh and then i think i read the ending to it i think the last couple i just went ahead and just said okay i need to figure out where they're at in this point in time and i, I kind of read the end of of the run because we we've talked about it several times on the show just in general um but that's that's kind of really my my experience with uh with the fantastic four in the comics well i can't wait to read along with you the stuff you haven't uh, read yet that should be a lot of fun yeah i mean the, what we're starting off with tonight is something uh that i didn't read and uh i read it in prep for the show and not, you know not to get too into it ahead of time but it really blew me away i mean i am a sucker for alternate realities alternate earths uh, and crazy stuff like that, and it was just so well done. I, I just really, I was almost kicking myself for not having read this sooner because it was just that good. Well, unfortunately, a lot of people, even you know, fans of the Hickman Run, aren't even aware it exists. Like I didn't read it until. I don't know, maybe six months until after Hickman's run was done. Um, I know, Jim, I don't think you had read it until a couple months ago. And it's just one of those things that when people talk about the run, I, I don't think they even know it exists at all. And it sets up so many things that will pay off in huge ways down the line. Um, 
or specifically one major thing, but some other stuff as well, that it's a shame that it's not as well known. But it will be packaged as part of the omnibus, the the first volume. So hopefully, as we go into the future, more and more people will become familiar with the uh, five-issue Dark Rain miniseries. Yeah, for some reason, I, I totally blanked on the fact that Hickman was involved with that at all. Um, I, I you know I started picking up the, tra- the trades and then later the hardbacks of his run on Fantastic Four. And until you mentioned it to me, I for some reason, I had blanked on the fact he had drawn it. Uh, written the uh the dark rain part of it as well but uh, i'm glad we're starting here because this is really i mean when you look at jonathan Hickman, the way he tells stories he isn't the writing for the trade kind of guy he does do done in one stories but they're definitely always part of a bigger tapestry and he's always working on the bigger story i mean look what and all the coverage we did on infinity how it was always you know telling a bigger and bigger story and how that's now just turning out to be the prelude to what he really wants to do so it's definitely evident here okay. in FF as well. I mean, he, like you said, Jordan, he definitely plants a lot of seeds here in Dark Rain. Um, and there are things, there are seeds he plants here in these first few issues we'll cover tonight that are still major elements in his Avengers and New Avengers runs. Like, it's amazing how, how much, I don't want to say milking, I don't want to say he's like milking this material because that makes it sound bad, but it's amazing how much he's been able to get out of it. Yeah, there are just some writers that are really deft with uh, with using continuity to its advantage. I mean, you look at Jeff Johns at DC as, as kind of like that, or, or even I think James Robinson to a certain extent, if you look at his JSA run or Starman or whatever, he's just very good at using continuity to its its best its best purpose. I mean, it's, it's become such a dirty word, and now with you know the new Fifty Two, and now with Marvel now re, soft rebooting and everything like that, you know continuity. But if you look at Hickman's uh, run on on FF, it is definitely that's the word that that you have to use because it is all continuous. It is all one big story serving one larger tale that's being told. Just to kind of set it up a little bit, Dark Rain was kind of a weird time, too. It was like an event, but not an event. You know, there was no quote-unquote... It was a status quo. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. To be honest, there though, no... I mean, if you read... I mean, I really... Uh, some of my favorite... I liked some of the stuff that came out of Dark Rain and Siege better than I liked that came out what came before, which was Civil War um, and, and all of that. I mean, if you look at, you know, Dark Avengers... Um, the, oh sure, that was really you know good, some good storytelling. At first, you know, the Dark Rain gimmick was kind of a hard sell for me, but once I, I saw the stories that were being spun out of it, um, especially I mean, if you look at Reed, I mean, Reed and Sue were on different sides of the registration issue, you know, in coming into Dark yeah. Rain, and they're trying to bring their you know their marriage back together after this you know this big divide between the two of them. Reed feeling totally responsible for the aftermath and everything that had happened. I mean, uh, this is the reason. I mean. Getting into the first issue, that's the reason he builds the bridge. Um, we, we, we find Reed, you know, being helped by Herbies. And by the way, it's written by Jonathan Hickman, the arts by Sean Chen. He, he's being helped by a bunch of Herbies to build this thing called the bridge, which plays uh, into his entire FF, uh, plays into Hickman's entire FF run. But the whole impetus of him building that is to try to find a better solution than what actually happened. And, and this first splash page uh, on, I guess, pages two and three is just gorgeous. I love the way that the title is worked into the image. It's kind of fringe-esque in that way. It's not the same exact thing, but it gives me that same feeling. of, uh, And it's a grand introduction to what will be a grand, grand run. Well, you see, I mean, we see it all the time in Hickman's work, too, that real attention to design. Um, this is the first time we also kind of... This is the first time he used the um, those kind of um, you know beginning pages with the diagrams that show the... Uh, the relationship to everybody that we also saw in Avengers, the the hectograms, as you call them. Yes. <laughs> Although this is a very early hectogram. It's very simple. 
but it's it's effective. We uh, you should, uh, give us a page of uh, Franklin and Valeria uh, coming back to the Baxter Building after all the, the ruckus of Civil War and, and the uh, you know Norman Osborn taking over after Secret Invasion and whatnot. And um, they're, you know Alicia is uh, Alicia Masters is escorting them, but this kind of also sets up. If you look later in the run, Hickman's not. I want to say he puts a real focus on Franklin and Valeria. They aren't just you know hostages or you know Deus Ex Machinas to be used when the you know the, pro- the problems get too big or whatever. They're actually really well written characters. You know, especially in Franklin's case, he's written like a you know like like a little kid, like a kid his age would talk. You know. Um, Valeria is a little more advanced, obvious, but like these takes of these characters are the ways, or you know, feel, you know, in many ways throughout his run, really affect you know what the story is telling. You know, yeah, he really sets up all the major characters in these first couple issues um, to be. I don't want to say to be the people they will be throughout the entire run because there is a emphasis put on evolving these characters and changing them based on their experiences. But their essences are definitely set up here for what they're going to be. Plus, I mean, he's taken over the book, so he kind of wants to set his tone. He wants to set his, you know, hey, this is how I'm writing Ben. This is how I'm writing Johnny. This is how I'm using, you know. And, you know, his emphasis on Franklin and Valeria in this story, I think, really kind of foreshadows how important they are later. And then in FF as well as Fantastic Four. Absolutely. And we should point out, uh, Franklin dressed as a cowboy, and we will see another similar character dressed as a cowboy later on. We also get a nice uh, character moment here with Ben and uh, Ben and Johnny. Johnny's kind of, you know, he, he's kind of lost his way. He really doesn't understand what he wants to do with the rest of his life. He's kind of, you know, starting over and, and uh, you know, Ben Ben's you know, trying to help him to be optimistic. We see Susan as the capable organizer and uh, kind of, you know, controlling force over them. And uh, slowly they realize that all the robots that are supposed to be helping them move in have disappeared. And not just Herbies, but also Doombots. Right. So all the robots have disappeared. Uh, they're supposed to be helping them move in. They follow the robots down to Reed's lab. And Reed is busy building a giant gizmo, as he often is in pretty much every FF story I've ever read. And it's a Stargate. This is, yeah, it does kind of look like a Stargate. But this is a, a gizmo to, to beat all gizmos. He, as I said earlier, he feels really um, uh, to blame, you know, being part of the Illuminati and all that for secret invasion. Um, and even Civil and, War stuff, too, like cloning right. Thor and all that he kind of stuff. He just feels like he, he, he made mistakes. And by building, and we get this great two-page spread, by the way, of this this Stargate item that you're talking about called the Bridge. Um, he is building this bridge that will allow him to see alternate realities so he can find a solution that another, you know, in another reality that has to be better than the outcome here, or it has to be the better decision that he made some other reality. He can't come up with a better way to fix it other than to figure out, to look into other realities to find out how they coped with the same problem. And I love what he says here to, to Sue and the group, which is there's nothing I can't do. I believe that I'm supposed to make the world a better place. And the truth, the truth is that it is not that at all. And we'll see where he gets that uh, idea in his head later on in the run. But it's it's funny, too, because this kind of sets up the impetus for um, um, the whole, like, his whole, like, solve everything, the, the whole storyline of solve everything, where he is literally trying to figure out all the world's problems. And right. this is kind of, you know, leading up to that. He has built this window into other worlds, into other dimensions, so he can solve all the problems and make everything right. 
So they're having this conversation uh, in his lab when all of a sudden Norman Osborn's goons show up. The Hammer Troops. And what does Hammer stand for, Jim? Uh, I have no idea. Yeah, nothing because they never came up with an act. Uh, they just wanted it to it. spell out Hammer. <laughs> They just thought it sounded... Well, no, I remember, like, in the beginning of... uh, I think it was the beginning of Dark Avengers. Basically, Norman Osborn says, it sounds cool, and he tells um, Victoria Hand, I I believe it was, basically, come up with something to backronize it, which is to uh, take in a previously existing word and turn it into an acronym to make it a backronym. And I don't think they ever actually do that in the entire Dark Run era. Or Dark Reign era, rather. As as Norman Osborn's goons or the Hammer Troops are getting ready to... Uh, Salt the Baxter, Baxter Building. Reed explains more, even more so. You know, here he is. You know, but here's a good quote: "There's no problem that can't be solved." He says, "I know this. I almost lost all of you this year. I made some choices that directly led to the deaths of some of our friends and tore the world to pieces. And for the life of me, I don't know where I went wrong. Yes, this has to be handled now. So for him, it's like a personal crisis. It's a personal emergency. He's he's caused all this strife." He feels he, you know, he is the cause of everything that that happened. In some ways, he was very responsible for for the conflict that went on, and you know, he, he also this is kind of the the way into the the to Reed's, Reed's character. I think Hickman uses it, is that Hick, Reed's character thinks that it's his obligation. You know, like you said earlier, you know, his mind is his gift. He has to do this. He has to figure out where it went wrong. He feels incredible obligation and responsibility to do so. Well, and he, he sees the problems getting compounded. You know, Civil War was bad enough, and then it was Secret Invasion, and now Osborne is in charge of stuff, and it's just like, I think he's feeling that if he doesn't step up and do something, you know, if Norman Osborne could be in charge of, basically in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D., and it gets worse, like, how, you know, what's that going to look like? And he believes he not only that he can fix it, but that he's the only one who can fix it. Right, and that I mean, obviously, that becomes a bigger theme later on. But you know, part of it—it's funny because part of it is arrogance, and part of it is not. Right? I mean, it—it's it, almost—it's it, not that he's so much bragging as he's just stating fact. And Reed lacks the social graces, you might say, to realize that it sounds like bragging, because it is just a fact. Right. Exactly. He says goodbye to everyone. Uh, he says, wish me luck. And Sue, uh, he tells Sue that he will always come home. And if you know, like I said, if you've read the FF storyline, you know how important that is, that he has this home life, that he has Sue, that he's a father, that he had his father. And this becomes a big theme later on in Hickman's story. And the phrase, I will always come home, I think, uh, pops mm-hmm. up a few more times. And uh, they leave Reed to his interdimensional questing. Uh, meanwhile, downstairs... Uh, the hammer troops break in, and just as Johnny and Ben and Sue get on the elevator, uh, the hammer troops are cutting the power to the Baxter building. Uh, just and at the same time, of course, Reed's you know uncertainty principle uh, uh, experiment is going on. And Franklin and Valeria are returning right. home. So we get this half splash of the of this weird energy bathing the Baxter building, a black panel, and then. Uh, the three out of four of the Fantastic Four waking up in the elevator. They're mad because, of course, they've been assaulted at the Baxter building so many times, it's not even funny. Uh, Johnny Johnny starts to heat up the, the elevator, even though they're, you know, they're in a confined space. And Ben opens the door, and instead of opening the door to the Baxter building, they are in prehistoric Marvel Earth. <laughs> this giant, yes. beautiful splash page of dinosaurs and celestials and deviants on the, the left there, and and man as well. 
And who's the uh, flying silvery guy? I think it's one of the Eternals. I can't remember which one. But we have the we have gotcha. a version of like uh, you know Sheena or whatever, Cave Girl, and uh, Deviants over there on the left. Celestials looking on because of course Marvel, you know, prehistoric Marvel uh, Earth was a big uh, genetic experiment between the Celestials and then later on the Kree. You know, and uh, right. it's great how Jonathan Hickman is playing all into this. Plus, it gives Sean Chen a chance to let loose with some sweet pencils on these pterodactyls and. and Transaurus Rexes and Celestials. Yeah, looks great. Yeah, and I love how. And of course, the Celestials will be a major part of this run. Yeah, when I like how you know he's not afraid to draw the Celestials where one of them is. Well, you can't see the whole thing of either one of them. I mean, they're you know one of them you just kind of see from the waist, like chest up, and the other one you can't even see its you know top of its shoulders and its head. So again, it just really kind of emphasizes the scale that these things have. I always like it when you just kind of see like a foot or, you know, like an arm or something like that, because it just really goes to the scale uh, of these things. Um, the other thing that was cool is the, is the elevator setup, right? They make a point of saying how, Oh, we should be on the fifth floor. And, and when I was reading this, I was like, Oh, well, uh, you know, obviously they're probably either further up than they thought, or, you know, they're in the basement or some crazy stuff like that. So it was kind of a cool, a cool reveal that when, you know, you get the page flip and it's this, you know, huge double plate spread of them in this, you know, savage land type environment. And if we didn't make it clear, they got transported here because the power was cut at the same moment that the bridge was activated and uh, or, or right after it was activated. And uh, that uh, that threw everything uh, into a kerflu- put it in the kerflui machine for sure. Well, like as Reed, as Reed, well, I mean, Reed says earlier in the issue, you know, that you, I am dealing with uncertainty after all. Right, but but he makes such a point of saying, oh, it's got its own power source, and you know, I've got the building as a backup with you know, uh, uh, you know, some sort of shield generator around that, even you know, and and just kind of really trying to make his case that no, this thing will be safe. Like it, it, it's you know, it's yes, there's some uncertainty, but you know, it's not going to cause a major problem. And then you know, right out of the bat. That, you know, something happens that causes a major problem. <laughs> <laughs> As is apt to happen in a Fantastic Four comic. We then yep. end, up, end with a, a great splash page of Reed look at, spacing out 2001 at the end of 2001 uh, Space Odyssey style. Yeah. In the background there. Uh, okay, here we go. Let's have a look at everything. <laughs> and it's funny, he's got like that that torso it's almost like a tony stark like early you know mark 2 mark 3 iron man armor thing on um and when i saw that the first thing i thought of is like you know how when a movie comes out or or they, they do like batman figures batman's probably the worst with this or even iron man or even spider-man i've seen where when the you know the tie in the movie they have to sell more than just one version of the figure so they come up with these crazy ass costumes that show up all uh, right and so like Reed Richards in his, you know, bridge, or, you know, uncertainty principle machine, you know, costume. <laughs> like that. It's just kind of funny. With light up diorama. <laughs> well, you you could make a lot of different quote unquote Reed Richards action figures by the end of this run. <laughs> That's true. Oh, a lot. Oh, wow. Yeah, no doubt. And then in issue number two, I love the opening splash page of Franklin pointing his two toy uh, six guns at camera, quote unquote, saying "Move and it's I Carl. shoot." Yeah, yeah. kind of. Yeah. Of course, the uh, 
Soldiers don't take them seriously. Uh, Franklin kind of toys with them while Valeria builds something that looks like a really powerful, nasty gun. And the guys freak out because they know, they've been briefed on Valeria, they know that she's a super genius, and uh, they're afraid to get... And we should point out, she's three years old right. at this point. But she's a little smarter yeah. than your normal three-year-old. You know, she's <laughs> a lot smarter than my three-year-old. Uh, but anyway... Um, you know, the, the guys freak out because they have a death ray pointed at him, and it turns out he's just a you know interspatial communicator. Uh, we get this great, another great double page spread here, chapter two, the bridge of again the dinosaurs, and now the uh, it's like maybe you know thirty seconds after the the last double page spread we had um, uh, of the you know the three out of the Fantastic Four uh, lashing out. I like how you have just the aftermath of the thing's punch here, with like the upside down dinosaur uh-huh. being thrown out of panel. Yeah, um, and then the celestial reaching down with the giant hand, so great. That foreshortening and that perspective is awesome. And I can't remember for sure, but I want to say the what looks like a gun, but it's actually a communicator that Valeria builds. I think that also comes back at some point in the series, but I'm not a hundred percent on that one. Uh, we get a nice. I love the inner inner uh, thing here with uh, Franklin talking to Valeria. I think Dad uh, really screwed up an experiment, <laughs> and it's cut cut with panels. Uh, of the three out of the Fantastic Four, you know, the two Storms and Ben Grimm fighting for their lives. Uh, what made, what yeah. made you think that? <laughs> well, Dad's usually pretty careful, but whatever he's got working on is putting out a lot of excess energy. Building is glowy. Yep, not Yeah, good. it's not good when the building is glowy. <laughs> so the uh, the kids, they fix uh, the power coupler that w- was cut by uh, the Hammer Agents. It doesn't fix everything, but at least... Uh, it's not going to electrocute them. And then I love uh, when we flash back to, to Reed, you know, it's not quite a hictogram, but that's definitely some Hickman design there of basically uh, Reed looking at wheels within wheels within wheels of the multiverse. It kind of reminds yeah. me of the, the art direction of the Marvel movie Universe Computers, where it looks like a yeah, 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 blue, yeah. holographic blueprint, kind of. Definitely. It's a, it's a great It's great too how he's in that circle panel in the center of it all. You know what I mean? He just kind of looks overwhelmed. And then we um, we get this great... Um, I love this uh, the splash page here you know, this, where he says, you know, the Superhuman Registration Act, Civil War. And it's all kind of there in this one panel. You've got Cap and, and Iron Man in the center of it fighting, you know. Um, you know um, the Iron Spider looking on from the right. you got Luke Cage, uh, Daredevil. You have... Uh, um, Hank Pym and, and, and Bill Foster, both the giant size fighting Carol Danvers, all, you know, it's kind of just like one one panel of telling of the Civil War. The only thing that's missing, I guess, would be Clone Thor. But <laughs> Yeah. He's there in spirit, if not in, in actual physical presence. The, um, we cut back to uh, to uh, Franklin and Valeria while uh, Reed is analyzing the, the uh, is uh, engaging the visualizer, <laughs> as he says, and then uh, Valeria cuts the power back on. And as she cuts the power back on, space-time compresses, and the um, Reed is in the the white room <laughs> for a minute. Uh, he puts on the helmet and he asks the computer, uh, you know, how many, you know, how many uh, different realities enacted uh, the superior registration? It's twelve million four hundred thirty-five thousand and eighteen. Um, you know, of those, how many resulted in conflict? You know, three thousand and eight. And these, you know, winnowing it down to as you know many realities as would fit you know, comfortably, like about 400 uh, in 18, he settles on. And uh, we see 
an alternate reality where uh, Reed Richards and Hank Pym in, in, initiated the Registration Act, and then Pym died of an aneurysm two days later. Um, it's kind of a variation. It's it's really weird. Like it's like all these what if uh, ideas, all these different um, uh, alternate realities, and then. I can't imagine them selling an 80s comic, though, with, what if Hank Pym died of a brain aneurysm? <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as exciting as uh, some of the Civil other Civil War. Watch him have a mess of aneurysm. Um, we, after space-time is uncollapsed, we are now in a, uh, an alternate history of uh, medieval uh, nature, where the Storms and, uh, and Ben Grimm are the royal court. Kind of an alternate 1602. Yeah, yeah. But we see really cool armor for Cap and for Thor and for Iron Fist. That Cap armor. And I love that Sentry just looks still exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I love the Cap armor, and I love the, uh, even the Iron Man, where it's kind of got, like, the chain mail underlay, you know, the gold, like that. It's just, I don't know, it's just a really cool, it's just a really cool look. Like I said, I'm kind of a sucker for this alternate history type stuff, but I think if they made an action figure out of that Captain America medieval with that shield this a few pages on they get, they give us a really uh sweet shot of it uh and if they made a figure out of that i think i'd have to grab that for sure well i love i love the uh, medieval version of yellow jacket as as tony stark is giving his speech to to storm the monarchy you know with the goggle it almost looks steampunk rather than medieval with the goggles and the yeah as, and uh the bullseye the medieval bullseye and the medieval she-hulk yeah. are there um, it also, you know, one of the other panels was like a medieval. Spider-Man looks the same too. Yeah, <laughs> which is odd. It's even a, a past version of Cable, which is kind of weird. Yeah, from the right. future, in uh, the very distant past. We see uh, Tony Stark give a very impassioned Braveheart-type speech to the mm-hmm. uh, the rest of the Marvel community to to storm the castle uh, and take it from the the uh, the storms. Sue Storm re- replies in typical typical aristocracy uh, style with "Hear the animals roar." It confuses me. It's just really weird how she falls. You know, these are um, you know nominally the, the people that we know, but they're in, you know cast in entirely different roles. Um, Captain, I America's... love that Ben Grimm has a monocle. Yeah, <laughs> it kind of looks like a mutated Mister Peanut. <laughs> <laughs> And then we get some more uh, alternate uh, resolutions to Civil War from Reed. Uh, there's one where uh, Iron Man was a woman, and so she, since she and Cap were in love, there was no I'm problem. Sorry, real quick, back to the the the, uh, the Renaissance medieval one, because uh, the, I, I have to I have to shout this out because this was a great line. Uh, Sue Storm you know, says, "What say you, Chamberlain Grimm?" And he replies, "Milady, tis the clobbering hour." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a great. I'm sorry, I really like that, but. Please continue. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Civil War where Cap uh, Cap was married to Iron Man or Iron Woman in this case, so no problem. Uh, we get some like some other cool ones too, like where Cap wasn't thought out yet at the time of Civil War, and Tony was still a drunk, so a lot of the problems were avoided. Like all different, really cool toying, you know, moments of toying with Marvel history of, well, what if this was just 20 years later or 10 years earlier or all these different it's things? It's amazing that Hickman's just able to spin out all these alternate realities and just make them very plausible in a very short amount of description. I mean, you're like, oh, okay, and, you know, he hits all the high points. You're like, oh, I understand that, you know. Um, it's kind of amazing to me that he's able to come up with all these what-if scenarios that make so much sense. And basically, after we go through a, a couple of them, Reed basically figures out in all of the realities where it was resolved peacefully, it, the the key was that I, meaning Reed, I acted alone. 
Yeah. Again, kind of fulfilling that it's not ego and it's not, you know, braggadocio. It's the fact that, look, the universe has proven me correct. (laughs) Or the multiverse, I guess, has proven me correct. Just real quick, I was going to say, it's funny as they go through these alternate, you know, histories that that we're seeing, um, you know, like Jordan mentioned, the uh, the medieval one is kind of a take on 1602. And then we see the one where he gives everybody superpowers. That's kind of like, I guess you could kind of say it's a take on uh, Chris Scroll War, where, where Rick Jones well, like, gives everyone like, superpowers. Yeah, well, like where the order or Earth the order. X. You know, that's what or I was. Earth oh, X. yeah. Earth X thinking, too. You know, where the, the, the I forget what the and Reed was responsible for that. I mean, he was responsible for the thing that that went off and. Right. Oh, that's right. He was the one that made Earth-X the way it was. I forgot about that. He ended up wearing the Doom armor and stuff, yeah. It's kind of a lot of parallels. And then, you know, how that thing ended up, you know, nobody could die. And, you know, as they went into, like, Paradise-X and stuff like that. But uh, So there are, it seems like, some parallels to, you know, stories that have been told of some of these alternate uh, what-if realities or whatever you want to call them. So Reed decides he wants to find out more. And at that moment, uh, space-time collapses again. It seems like every time he makes a different choice on his machine, it also impacts the rest of the uh, Fantastic Four is traveling through alternate histories. And so they end up at the end of Chapter 2 on a pirate ship, or, or more active, accurately, maybe like a pilgrim ship, but that same era. And as, yeah. we see in the next, uh, as we see in the next issue on the giant splash page that starts it, not just a regular pirate ship, but a, pirate, a sky pirate ship, thank you very much. With, oh, uh, that's with true. Shield, I about that. It looks kind of like shield helicarrier jets uh, sticking yeah. out of it, yes. uh, which I thought was just so cool. I love, I love that idea. And uh, we, uh, if you look at the, uh, the 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 ship they're firing upon, it has a, it looks like a, a scroll maidenhead. Yes, it, yeah, it, that was a yeah. cool detail. I thought as well. But um, chapter three, the bridge, as I said, also by Hickman and Sean Chen. By the way, I want a quick shout out for the art. I really do like the art in this. Uh, the series, it is well done. I think it renders the, the, the Fantastic Four really well. And, and it's cool we're going through in order. Like in the, in that second issue, we've got Civil War. We're seeing a version of it in the past and alternate uh, present versions. Here we're seeing an alternate version of Secret Invasion. And we'll also see uh, Reed deal with that in alternate realities as well. I particularly like um, this alternate past version of the uh, of the Illuminati where, where Doctor Strange looks like Weird Al. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I should say post eighties weird right. Al whose hair down not out. Yeah, yes, and no mustache. Well, I guess he does have a mustache as well. He's kind of a hybrid weird Al. Um, it turns out Sue Storm is uh, an agent agent Storm for that version of the Illuminati. Except she got one of her te- teeth knocked out. <laughs> she she lost it to scurvy, <laughs> which is awesome. Yeah. Um, we then uh, we then go back to the bridge and Reed is uh, taking off his. Helmet, and then he sees yet another version of the Illuminati. This one, including Doom and Magneto, which I I love the Illuminati as it is, but that's to me an even more interesting version. Of well, things. I mean, considering Xavier was out of the picture for a while there, I mean, Magneto would be the de facto leader of the mutants, I would think. You know, oh, good, good so thought. That yeah, would make yeah. Sense. So yeah, so right now Reed is cross referencing worlds that had you know a secret invasion problem and worlds that had an Illuminati. Um, and one of the case studies, uh, uh, we, by the way, we flash back to, um, uh, uh, you know, the pirates, uh, fighting the scrolls, uh, which is great. I love the shot of, of Johnny with the sword and the, the scroll coming down behind him, you know, double handed and just a really cool panel. I really liked it. 
hair on fire. Yeah, he's kind of doing his best Ghost Rider. Yeah. Or Fire Lord. And as he's saying this, he's talking about case study of Earth 5521, which I thought was pretty interesting, that the first act of this Illuminati was to unleash the Phoenix on the Skrull homeworld. Yeah, and that then, was pretty awesome. Yeah, and then afterwards destroyed the Phoenix. And then back to the pirate ship for a while. And then we see in another uh, case study of Earth, um, the Illuminati was just fine because Reed at their first meeting killed all of them. <laughs> I love because that. he knew it was such a bad idea. And I love that look at his face. It's like, oh my. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> oh, dear. This is going to be messy to clean up. <laughs> and we also see that on, in the top part of this panel, see, you know, the pirate ships are fighting, but uh, it's a little early to be toasting Johnny Storm because there seems like there's about another 20 Skrull ships on your tail. It's pretty It's pretty funny. I've been playing uh, Assassin's Creed Black Flag recently, so I'm, I'm digging it. I'm, I'm all about the pirate thing. Um, we yeah. see Valeria and Fr- and Franklin have uh, found their way into the kitchen. <laughs> they have sleeping bags on the floor, and they put out a camp, camp stove, and they're making be- Franks and beans. And basically, they're preparing for uh, when the Hammer guys left. They they left a note basically saying that uh, uh, Norman Osborn's coming here tomorrow to see mom and dad and decide if they keep get, get to keep being superheroes. And so they decide to put together a plan of what they're going to do if Norman Osborn comes back and mom and dad aren't back yet. And then we get another collapse of space-time, and now we are in uh, Robot Cowboy Land. And who's there? Uh, You might have noticed I said before that uh, I thought it was important that Franklin's being dressed as a cowboy this whole time, because who else is dressed as a cowboy? The Beyonder. The Beyonder. (laughs) And not just any Beyonder, but specifically a cowboy version of the Secret Wars 2 Beyonder, which I said we'd get to as well. I just really wish they would have given him the Jerry Curl. (laughs) <laughs> I want an action figure of this version of the Beyonder, though. Speaking of uh, action figures, that is a cool-looking character. And I love that he's the quote-unquote white hat, even though he's not wearing a hat, and Sue's the black hat. Right. Sexy Stu, or Sexy Sue. Black, black Susan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's interesting, too, considering that that in the Illuminati miniseries, how, how they had that uh, encounter with the, the Beyonder. And basically, yes. told, you know, basically had Black Bolt order him to go away. It's kind of, you know, it seems, uh, you know, cool that he'd pop up here. This really is kind of like a greatest hits of Marvel continuity. Yeah. Yeah. Miniseries. Like remix, though. It kind of reminds me of Exiles or um, those other books that kind of rely on alternate reality uh, uh, takes. I know Russ and I have always talked about how we love that kind of thing in our comics. So this is a real treat to see all these different, like, just windows into different takes on these stories, you know? Yeah, I love the next next set we get where... uh, there's one reality where the Beyonder came and was worshipped, and I love that the that everybody's just some people are standing there like arms crossed, and then you get like the Hulk who has his arms up, <laughs> which is it just Steve Holt. It just seems kind of funny. Um, but then I like that one of them, kind of the take on Secret Wars, where they were just banished to the world, like. But this one, like all of the heroes and the and the villains were banished to that world and then just left there. <laughs> Right, and then, the, and then another one where the Beyonder just destroyed the world. Yeah, and then and then recreated it with one man and one woman. So that 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 was a kind of an interesting take, I guess. A, uh, and then I love the next page where it's uh, Black Sue and the Beyonder facing off. Yes, but it's intercut th- sets of three panels where you have one panel of the clock ticking closer to noon, then a panel of her, a panel of him, clock her, him, clock her, him, clock. As it hits 12. And I love that she winks at him. That's so awesome. And then his eyes just go yeah. wide. Oh, 
It was just so awesome. And that's enough for her to blow him through, uh, through with uh, with some lead and, and you know shoot him to the ground. And then, of course... And I love that she's levitating the right. shells. or Not the shells, but the... Uh, the bullets. The, uh, the bullet casings. Very uh, Neo. As she shoots him, but she's holding the bullet casings. Yep. Then blows on the top of the gun as uh, Reed disengages the bridge. Um, we find... Or goes to the next setting, anyway. Then we, yeah, and then we see the, another outcome of Secret Invasion, you know, total surrender. He loves you. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a nice Which back. is what some people thought might happen, uh, because we knew Dark Reign was coming, but we didn't know how Secret Invasion was going to end. And a lot of us were excited for a possibility where maybe the scrolls run things for a year. Yeah, I still wish they would have done that. But... I still wish that Bendis would have had the stones to do that. Yeah. It would have been cool. It would have been cool. I remember all those ads they had, you know, choose, what was it choose change or, uh, you know, embrace, embrace change. change. And I always had like the hand, the two hands, you know, photo of the two hands being held and one of them was Photoshop green. And then we're in, is this World War II? It looks like World War II, one. but it's the pirate Johnny and the, uh, the Chamberlain with the uh, monocle, uh, Ben Grimm, as well as World War II Ben Grimm and Cowboy Sue. And I guess World War Two Sue and World War Two Johnny, and General Willie Lumpkin. I, I'm assuming that's who it's supposed to right. be, or it's the Stan Lee cameo. Stan Lee, yeah, well, he picked, picked, picked. <laughs> And I love well, how their helmets... in the mar- in the MCU at least they're the same, or not the MCU, but in the Fantastic Four movies they're the same person. Yeah, I love the their helmets. Like Johnny has a little flame on his helmet. Sue has a little white kind of. Uh... I guess it's kind of emulator force field powers. Ben's has the, the mesh netting on the top. I, I just thought that was kind of a cool. And uh, we see that they're part of this giant battle against some alien invasion. One would presume the, the scroll mothership or whatever. But it's during World yeah. War II, so we see all these B-52 bombers coming at it and uh, flying fortresses and whatnot. Uh, and the chamber, Chamberlain Grimm falling, losing his monocle, and then fading to black. And then we cut back to uh, the kids who are waking up in their sleeping bags and... Uh, Franklin uh, goes to look at the the view screen. He comes back and he yells for Val to wake up. And then I love the ending double page splash, kind of revisiting that that earlier image of him pointing the guns at the camera. But now he's facing camera, and you can see the screen behind him with Norman Osborn and uh, Venom slash Spider Man slash Mac Gargan and Hammer troops and tanks. And he's holding his guns a little bit more off to the side, but he's yelling right into the camera. Norman Osborn is a coming, and hell's coming with him. And I really like the cover to issue four. I guess it's done by Pascal Ferry and, and Dave McCraig. Uh, I think they did all the covers for this. The, the covers are really kind of no, cool. I think they were done by different people, actually. The, mm. Oh, were they? A couple of them are, are in a very similar yeah. style, See, so I wasn't this, sure. Yeah, Simona Bianchi does the first one. Mm-hmm, right. Oh, yeah, that one is definitely different, yeah. But anyway, the, with the, the Green Goblin lo- lo- looming over Franklin and Valeria, uh, I just thought it was Looks cool. almost like uh, Don Bluth. Like a little. Now we get a um, a new pictogram to show us the the relationship here. Um, um, Invisible Woman, Black Sue, World War Two Sue. You've got Human Torch, Pirate Johnny, World War Two Johnny, um, the Thing, Chamberlain Grimm, and World War Two Ben. So as they're falling through space time, they're collecting alternate versions of themselves and bringing them with them, which is an interesting reflection of what happens later with Reed, if you think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, we see, you know, like seconds after the last, uh, the end of the last issue, it's uh, Franklin and Valeria watching the monitor as uh, Norman Osborn and his version of Venom and the Hammer Troops roll up. Uh, Norman Osborn here to see Reed Richards. Uh, meanwhile, we get the double page spread of uh, 
Reed in his contraption with the helmet on, making a gurgling noise. And we get the bridge, chapter four. Uh, and he throws the helmet to the floor because he's had enough. Um, there's just too many things he's trying, too many variables. You know, over one billionaire is downloaded into his brain, and the conclusion's the same. Uh, no circumstances could have avoided, you know, what happened. There's no way he could have gone out of it. So, uh, the the doors open downstairs. Norman Osborn walks in, and Valeria is dressed as the secretary. Um, tells him to you know to fill out some paperwork, and then he unleashes Venom to kind of scare at him and growl. To which she says, "Oh, so gross." <laughs> I, I think this will be the first time I've said this in our Fantastic February set, but it will by no means be the last. Valeria Richards is awesome. Yeah. Um, probably, no, definitely my favorite character out of all of this run. One of my favorite characters in Marvel in general, at least as written by Hickman. Um, and her as tiny three-year-old secretary. Right. <laughs> just, you know, condescending secretary, if you will, is just amazing. Yeah. And then she, uh... It, it's, oh. It, I was just gonna say real She's quick. schooling Norman Osborn on the law and the contracts he wrote. Yeah. It, it's kind of funny because her origin is a little wonky, but you know her her introduction into the into comics but the fact that they brought her in i think works so much better with franklin because for a while you know they've had to do some crazy stuff with franklin over the years and i know for a while the way they kind of made him more relatable and not have to be around adults was to bring like power pack into it like he he was a member of power pack for a while and i know they've aged those kids considerably over time um but bringing valeria in to kind of play off of franklin i think has been a huge plus for this for this franchise you know just just to give give him something to do and not a be a nuisance or you know be like i said always having to find other kids or finding creative ways to bring other kids into it to give him something to do and thematically uh, we'll get into it uh in i think the first issue of ff or at fantastic four proper um they are the head and the heart sure that is the whole con central conflict of the story which is, you know, intellect without heart means nothing. And he's the he's the heart, she's the head, and uh, they they perfectly illustrate that dichotomy. They're nothing apart. Well, they are they are still pretty powerful apart, but they're so much more when they're together. Uh, Valeria leads Norman down the hall and says, "Oh, you won't be meeting with mom and dad. They're busy doing superhero stuff. You'll be meeting with him." And it's Franklin wearing a uh, Spider-Man mask, and uh, and still the whole cowboy, still his outfit. cowboy outfit with his guns drawn. Um. Nice hair, loser. I love that. <laughs> the, this next version is really incredible. That uh, Cloud Space Time, we, we wake up to find that Reed is the uh, um, supreme uh, the intelligence. supreme intelligence, uh, the Kree supreme intelligence, being overrun by symbiotes. Yeah, and we should say the supreme intelligence, supreme order will be a major factor in the end of this run and still into infinity and beyond. And beyond. <laughs> Infin well, that was not an intentional pun. That was totally inadvertent. But I uh, guess infinity and beyond in terms of Marvel continuity. And I love the I love the voice that he has too because it's so you know that we're not used to this the, the supreme intelligence speaking in this manner. And this version of the Supreme Intelligence has almost like a slang-like dialogue. So it's just, it's really funny, this uh, these crazy ju juxtapositions with the Supreme Intelligence. Oh, I know. I love the part where she's like, oh, Supreme Intelligence, tell us what to do. Tell us their plan. And he's like, there is no plan. We're totally screwed. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and we should mention, not only are these symbiotes, but they're symbiotes who have infected the scrolls. Right. Yeah. The yeah. scroll symbiotes, even worse. You're never going to get rid of that, man. Gonna, I mean... it, it reminds me of, uh, was it Planet Symbiote? The uh, Spider-Man crossover from like 94, yes. 95, 96, somewhere in there? Yeah. Um, I unfortunately own those issues, but yes, it reminds me of that. They were all flip books, I believe, if I remember correctly. That's another conversation. Now you got Space Sue as well. Um, and just as a... Like 1950s futurist space right, she has a total yeah. bubble, bubble helmet and uh, the flared gloves and the ray gun. Very like Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers type, you know, Space Sue. Um, and as, as soon as she says, uh, Space Sue says, we'll find a way to survive... They switch over to Reed, who is, you know, there is always a way. And he goes back to the bridge. And he um, just wonders, you know, it was, if it's responsibility or arrogance that's, being, that's driving him, you know, which which of these is the fact. And when we switch back while, you know, he's having this ph- philosophical quandary, um, the FF, all the various versions of, of Johnny, uh, Sue, and Ben are getting their butts handed to them. <laughs> I mean, we see we see World War Two guys and Skrull symbiotes and Doombots and lions and tigers and bears. Oh my! I mean, Black Susan, you know, in midair with both guns drawn. Uh, just a really, I mean, incredible amount of stuff going on in this, in this splash page here. Yeah, it is chock full, and we see the, um, you know, as you know, uh, Reed's having his internal dialogue, realizing you know that he, you know. You know, he's the only one smart enough to solve it all, but yet he failed everyone. Again, you know, that, that feeling of responsibility he has because of his intellect, you know, kind of comes through. Um, yeah. Definitely a Hickman trade when writing his character uh, going forward. And he decides to switch off the visualizer. And as soon as he does, the three remaining members of the Fantastic Four are on back on the floor of the Baxter building. And many hugs right. were exchanged. Or at least one. And then they realize, uh, where are the kids? To which we jump to this half splash that I love of Franklin and Valeria being shot at, like legitimately shot at by Norman Osborn right. as they run towards camera. Well, Norman has that line earlier where he's like, I should talk to your parents about having you fed the wolves. And also this other line is he's chasing him with the gun. You children should know that I'm a firm believer in corporal punishment. Yeah. <laughs> and disrespecting your elders is one of my biggest no-nos. Um... Then his name gets called out, and we get this great double-page spread of the FF and Sue in front. You know, get away from my children. And again, this is the first time I'll say it, but not the last. Sue is a badass. Another hallmark of the Hickman run with uh, with Sue, with these characters, is you know Sue Storm being a true badass. You're absolutely correct. She is the most patient and the most powerful of the Fantastic Four, and you do not want to get between her and her family. We then uh, go to uh, issue five. The hictogram has been cleared of all the variant versions of the families, you know, of the family. Uh, we get a. I, I like this opening page. We get uh, you know close-ups of all the main uh, members of the, of the FF and, and Franklin and Valeria, uh, and st- with Sue's last. You know, I said get away from my children, Osborne. Then the double-page spread of Norman Osborne holding a gun on her and saying, "Make me." And then she does. Yeah. She verily, very handily does. She says with pleasure. <laughs> and slams him with a force field. Um, 
basically, you know, they take them, they, they take them all out because I mean, their tactics are so good. And they, you know, they've done this a million times. They know what works and what doesn't Reed has to, uh, Sue seal the room. So it's just them in a force field cube with Osborne. Um, you know, while all of his men and troops and everything are outside of that room, um, he pulls a gun, you know, he, he attempts to shoot Reed, and then we see a blam, and then on the next page we realize that it's Norman that's been shot, not Reed. But Franklin is holding a toy gun, which is smoking. And then he says, Mr. I'm the law around these parts. And of course, resetting up the fact that uh, Franklin is super, super, super powerful. He's essentially a tiny beyonder. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've lost track off and on of where they are with Franklin, but I know in the beginning and even through the early nineties, like his whole shtick was reality warping. You know, he, he could kind of bend reality to as well. I mean, that's where, you know, the whole heroes were born heroes return thing was all Franklin's doing. You know, he shunted everybody off into kind of this pocket universe. So for this to happen, I could see where if you don't have a lot of history with this character, you'd be like, well, what the hell happened? Like that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Um, but, and I believe at this point in the in the continuity, basically mental blocks have been put in his brain to keep him from being able to use his powers, uh, um, which will be addressed again in issue 574, which we'll probably get to next time. But uh, this is this is some the first evidence that maybe those mental blocks aren't as strong as uh, his parents. It's always thought. been a problem with some writers, too, about how to write Franklin, because he pretty, is pretty much is omniscient and you know, omnipotent in his own way by, you know, being able to bend reality. But Hickman turned that around and made it a cornerstone of his story. I mean, pretty much that he, I mean, that's the whole thing about Franklin's story, adult Franklin's storyline in Hickman is that he is, you know, saving reality by creating it. Kind of. And learning to, learning when not to use his powers, right. which is most of the time, <laughs> which helps keep it from being a uh, deus ex machina that happens. So Norman Osborne is like, you shot me. Your son shot me. <laughs> I'm going to. And Reed says, you won't do anything. I won't let you. Um, the family is back together. Kind of allude to what happened to them, but just kind of say they were put through the ringer, so to speak. Um, they, they were, you know, Sue was like, does something else happen? And Reed says, no, no. But then we cut to, you know, right before Reed turned off the machine and said, wait. And then asked how many other um, variant universes does someone build a bridge like I just did. And he finds out that it's 141. And then we get a great double page splash of him looking into the bridge and seeing a number of vaguely humanoid figures that are backlit so you can't see too much of them. But very disparate and, and strange looking figures looking back at him. And then we cut back to Reed, who's looking wistful and thinking of that while Sue is saying, asking him, you know, did something else happen? And Reed says, no, nothing. And then uh, she says, then I want you to destroy it. And he says, says what? And she says, I want you to destroy it. I want you to go back to your lab and destroy it. And he says, I'll take it apart piece by piece. I promise. And then we cut back to Reed seeing these people before, like Je- like Jordan said, they were kind of backwards. So we can't see exactly who they are. Um telling him, you know, let me guess, you want to fix things, we can help with that. And he says, who are you? And he said, they say, we're just like you, Reed, <laughs> and we'll be here when you're ready, but don't take too long. There's no telling how much worse it could get. And then he powered the machine off. So he did take it apart piece by piece, like he said, and then he put it all right back together. And we get this double page spread of him sitting on the stairs of the, the bridge. 
Um, and we see that in his room of a hundred ideas, which I believe was introduced in the Miller Hitch run, yeah, basically just a, a a room that was a giant whiteboard that he could write his one hundred ideas on for fixing you know the biggest one hundred problems of the world. We see that at the end, the last panel of the entire miniseries is idea one oh one solve everything, and it says in the caption box, there's no problem that can't be solved and that's the uh the um volume one of Hickman's uh, run is called Solve Everything, which begins in five seventy now, as far as I know, this was like basically uh you know miller the Miller Hitch run was closing out. And so for the last, like, five months or whatever of the Miller Hitch run, the Dark Rain miniseries was being published. And then the next month was 570, which is the first proper Hickman issue. Is that Do I have that correct? Or, I, or it was very close anyway. Yeah, I, and there was a bit of maybe controversy is a, is a strong word, but I don't think that Miller Hitch intended to be on it that short. Like, they had, I think, a longer – like, I think Miller had, had – grander intentions with that with that series and I think it was kind of cut short if I'm not mistaken I think maybe that was or maybe that was just the impression I know when they were only on it for like 12 issues I think everybody was like well that's kind of because when they first got on that book they they retrade dressed the whole thing I mean it was like a big deal you know for those two to be on it and you know it was kind of going to be this this big turn and I think at the time and maybe it was just like I said false and, and you know impressions on on the reader's part but i think the the impression at the time was they were going to be on this book for a considerable amount of time and then you know when they were kind of like 12 and out it was i think everybody was a little, little taken aback and then in issue 570 we get a brand new hictogram uh, to get, introduce us to the team and this is a hictogram that in one version or another will pretty much last for the entire um fantastic four run i think there might be some variations especially once you get into ff but uh, we also get starting these these little um, notes, basically, of, hey, here's the thing. Basically, the recap, but done in a stylized way that we won't discover why it is that way until several issues in. But I always kind of like that. It was a great way to be just to give you the, the bullet points of this happened, this happened, this happened, go. Uh, pay, the very first couple of pages here are, uh, are repeated again at the very end of Heckman's run in a, in a totally different way. But but kind of repeated, we see a young Reed on the ledge of a barn, and his father below him, and it says then, and uh, Reed is about to jump, wants to jump from the edge of the barn, but he's scared. Uh, you know, his father says it's all right, I'll catch you. And he uh, says he doesn't want to. He says, look, he says he's right. afraid. He says he's afraid, and then he tells he tells Reed it's okay to be afraid, it's okay to fail, but to say that you're not even willing to try, that's unacceptable. Oh, I'm welling up right now just thinking about where this goes. Oh, the, the 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 book ends right here, starting with this and then ending where it does end. One of the most beautiful things I've ever and read. It's in amazing comics. how thematically it fits to everything he's going to be talking about with the Richardses. It, it ties all into that, and in that little coda piece at the end where you know where this is reflected with Reed and Franklin. Um, it, it's just. Uh, again, it's very, very cool, very touching, and very, very well thought out. You know, just like, just incredible. And, and the the dialogue changes a little bit when we come back to it uh, at the end of this uh, run. But at least for this time, um, you know, he says, "Okay, I'll do my best." His dad says, "Are you ready? I'm ready. Good. Now jump." And and that now jump is the important part. That'll be that'll be different when we right. come back. And then we see Reed in flight from jumping off the barn loft. I was just gonna say the art the art on this. 
so it's it's Eagle Sham on the art, which I think was kind of a big deal too when when that came about. But um, it's funny the all the flashback stuff has a very fables like quality. I mean, Eagle Sham didn't do fables, but um, it just kind of has that fables quality where we get the bordered, like the art on the borders, and just I, I don't know. It just it just kind of had that quality. He was kind of channeling that George Perez Joe Senate period, where it kind of had like the Kirby esque uh, like. I don't know. It, it, it just really was good stuff. I really liked Eagle Shim's art on this run. So I just want... it's it's Kirby style facial structures, but with yeah, a more right. modern um, right, finish on it. Hard edged. When, like I said, yeah, when, Joe, not... when Joe Sinnott was inking, I'm sorry, Russ. When Joe Sinnott was inking George no. Perez on um, Fantastic Four there in the set, late '70s and early '80s, Sinnott brought kind of that Kirby edges to George Perez's style, which is also very you know, circular and loose and, and, and stuff and illustrative. So yeah, that's what it kind of reminded me of too, but I love this art. Yeah. I, I wasn't, I'm not a huge fan of like bulky Reed, but the cool thing about Reed is because of the way he can manipulate his body, it all works, you know? Yeah. And they're fighting robots, big purple robots, because there's no other type in the Marvel universe. No. If you're a big and a robot, you must, well, be especially purple. if you're being driven by the wizard. Because he, <laughs> yes, he that's, that's his true. trademark color. He's like Prince, you know, he goes with the purple. Um, as they're fighting him, uh, Johnny notices heat signatures inside the robots, knowing uh, that there are people inside, they change their tactics. Um, we, I, I love that when they cut to the wizard, the, it's the Manhattan, the wizard's lair, an unholy temple of science. <laughs> I just think it's hilarious. <laughs> you know, is there any, you know, he, he's just kind of monologuing to himself on this giant techno throne. It's just so awesome. Yeah. I was like, is there anything more disappointing than, uh, you know, the creator than the failure of his creation? It's also very Face disappointing. Face palm and all. Yeah, exactly. And below him, a character we will soon come to know and love, a character we won't get a name for right now, but let's just go ahead and say his name is Bentley, and he's awesome. As they crack open these giant robot shells to get the candy coating inside, they find that they are all clones uh, of the wizard, but not just clones, but clones that have been altered cybernetically as well to to, uh, basically self-destruct once once they've been stopped. Uh, Reed... As a as a re, you know has a um, is able to tune in uh, on on the frequency of, of where the you know the bomb is being you know uh, triggered from, but he only has one single translocator. So he plot he ploops away. I love that sound effect there. Ploop, <laughs> and and then he ploops and then back ploops in. into uh, Bentley uh, Bentley uh, Bentley's uh, hall of unholy science, as they called it earlier. They have a uh, philosophical argument. <laughs> um, and it's it's made quite clear here that the wizard has I don't know if he's always been this way but at least in the Hickman run he's kind of gone off the rails not just in terms of evil but he's literally becoming unhinged in years the, the helmet he wore not only did it give him powers it also enhanced his intelligence uh, he was already like a genius and it enhanced his intelligence even more which is what made him so arrogant uh, you know back in the day or whatever but after having used that helmet for years and years and years like you said starting to scramble his uh, his eggs 
uh, upstairs. Which I always like that kind of stuff, like what they did in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 600, where it was revealed that uh, Doc Ock was dying. Why? Because every time he's ever fought anybody, he's beaten by them punching him in the face. And years and years of getting punched in the face has caused major brain and spinal cord right. damage. And I, I just love when they play with stuff like that. But he, uh, he's basically done this to himself. Um, we then cut to uh, Reed and, and Franklin and Valeria going to bed at night. And this has basically been a story he's been telling them of their adventures earlier right. that day. This is what Daddy did at work today. You know, he, he stops to talk to Valeria, and it's obvious that uh, uh, Frank, you know, Valeria is, again, much smarter than your average three-year-old. Uh, then he tucks in Franklin... And um, Franklin asked him, "What happened to the what happened to the you know the wizard's kid? Is he going to be all right? The little boy in the story you told us." Um, but Franklin says, "Oh, but you're going to help him. You have to try, right?" And I, I love uh, right before Franklin says that, reads a little monologue here, which will again be very thematically important. He says, "I hope so. Sometimes when parents make bad." Uh, Sometimes when children have bad parents, it makes things very difficult. Sometimes they need not a lot of looking after. There's too much of that going on right now. It's uh, uh, We then cut to uh, Johnny and Ben, who are deciding where to go on vacation. And they're going to go to New World. Yeah, because where else would you go, really? I mean, <laughs> and New World's complicated. We'll explain yeah, it next we, time. We, uh, yeah, New World is very complicated. We will explain it next time. It's kind of left over from the Miller Hitch run. Um as we uh, we do this, we I, I just want to take this moment here while you know Reed is talking to 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 Sue to kind of uh, he has this kind of flashback while uh, while Sue is talking to him. Uh, he says, you know, I have some things rattling around in my head, and uh, you know, Bentley is telling him math is the language of God. Richards, we've been judged. You know, he kind of sees his, uh, himself in Bentley, and specifically adult Bentley the wizard, not Bentley thirty two right. or thirteen. You know that we will get to later. Um, Sue kisses him goodnight, tells him not to fall asleep in the lab. He goes into the room of 100 ideas, and we see again idea 101 solve everything. I like the sign, you know, deep in thought, keep out. <laughs> I need one for my room, that would be great. <laughs> he uh, goes to the bridge, oh, he fires it up, and we see the, the shadowy figures in the bright light again. Um, Although this time they all look a lot more humanoid. Than right, they and there are only uh, three of them this the time. time. Uh, there are only three this time. Um, he, he, he cranks it up and says, you said you could help me. And their response is, oh, he took three days longer than normal. And, you know, Reed asks, how do I solve everything? And their answer is aggressively. And they, he sees that there are three different versions of him. Uh, yes. One who's invisible, one who looks like he has some sort of plasma armor on. Um, maybe with a Tony Stark type uh, chest reactor or, what, or whatever, and one where he's uh, has looks like he has Johnny Storm's power of the Human Torch, and is also wearing Luke Skywalker's clothes for some reason. Right. Well, they're probably flame retardant. <laughs> he says, "You're me," and he says, "Clearly, I'm not." And neither are these men. My name is Doctor Richards, but I prefer Reed, as I'm sure you do too. And it turns out that these guys who are willing to help him solve everything are a whole passel of alternate versions of Reed Richards. And they take him to the hall, to the council, as they call it, um, in, in this strange uh, in, in a weird like temple palace structure um, drawn by Eagle Shim in this weird uh, design. I don't know, I just think it's really cool the way he has his palace or whatever. And, and the, the symbol, which is kind of a 
A, but maybe an alpha, but maybe... Well, I don't know if we ever really get an explanation of what that symbol means or if it's a previously existing symbol I'm not familiar with, but uh, on, on the, the council's chambers. And then when we go inside, the design of this is great from the um, the architecture that's very... You know, people walking on ceilings and up in possible staircases and all that kind of stuff. But then you've got, you know, we, we, we already know from the last volume, 141 people, or 141 worlds built a bridge. So we've got 141 reads, not all on camera. But you've got a Starbrand Reed Richards. Starbrand, that'll be important as we go into that's, the Avengers run. You've got that's a... That's my favorite one. Yeah. I looked at that, I was like, that is the most awesome thing I have seen. You've got a Professor X read. You've got, for some reason, a very, very fat read. Uh, you've got Silver Rock Surfer read. read. Yeah, Silver Surfer read. Uh, like Cyborg uh, Cable read, kind of there in the front with the one eye, uh, the one robot eye. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you have like the one who's Rocky and kind of dressed in a toga. You have uh, Arc Reactor chest read. Um, yeah, there's the is. one guy that's. If you look just to the right of. Uh, of the reed with the armor with the crack with the Kirby dots and stuff. It looks like the Christopher Pike reed. It looks like he's in that like Oh right. Yeah, it, yeah. It, 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 yeah, like he's all in a in a wheelchair up to his chest or something like that. Also you have steroid reed there next next to him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you've got one in a cloak that it kind of has the powers of cloak we see later from Cloak and Dagger. You've got one down right next to Starbrand on the left who has a uh, an enclosure over the top of his head, and you can see through a window on it his exposed brain. Because, you know, you like to expose your brain to people. <laughs> well, I'm sure there was some story reason. But uh, we'll we'll meet some of these more uh, in, in the future. Some of them will have very large roles to play. Some will have very small roles to play, but very important stories behind them. Um, there's th there's one gonna go that on looks like he's just to the left of the, the human torch read that looks like maybe he's out of like thunder the barbarian or something like that yeah that yeah funny. kind of an asgardian style or yeah something. yeah kenny rogers read <laughs> <laughs> um just as reed is trying to ask you know get his uh, bearings and try to find out what they're there for a giant trouble alert uh, like <laughs> blows up and uh the screen you know there's a galactus incursion on earth 2012 um and they explain that you know they police time as well as uh, act proactively within it, and then this issue ends with three of the reeds showing off their infinity gauntlets <laughs> and saying it's time you reach your full potential. We've got uh, businessman Reed who plays a big role next issue, but not much beyond that. We've got the center Reed with that another kind of Starfleet A type Alpha symbol on his chest will play a major role, and we've got Rasputin Reed who does not play, play a large role in the story, but later on there's an issue entirely about him and his world, and it is one of the best issues in the entire series. Yeah. It is awesome. So, that was cool. He doesn't only have an Infinity Gauntlet, he has a sword as well. Yeah. <laughs> and an epic beard. I mean, come on. Yep, Rasputin beard. And he's got a little doom in, in him, but we'll get to that later. We On the next issue, uh, we, we start off with, I don't believe in murder in this great splash page of Reed standing on broken rubble. We get like... But before that, though, I love on on the cover. Th there's a quote from the issue that says, "This morning, I helped kill a Galactus on Earth 2012." Yeah. Um, he says, "Here they come," and you have Fat Reed and like Adam Strange type Reed and uh, Destiny from DC Universe type Reed standing there with them. Uh, and we look up to this great double page spread of 
the Reeds fighting uh, two Silver Surfers. Well, there's a Silver Surfer, that. there's a Gold Surfer, a Copper Surfer, right. and one who's maybe Platinum. Right. And Galactus so, with four horns instead of two. Right. So the Metal Men as uh, Silver Surfers. Right. right. <laughs> Which and, is awesome. He's got like some weird like glowy guns sticking out of his shoulders, too, that aren't normally there. Oh, yeah, I thought those were spaceships, but you're right, yeah. those are guns. Yeah. But, uh, it's like uh, Rhodey's uh, cannons or something like that uh, from Warm Shoe. It's, it's a really cool page. And the perspective is like so wonky that it works so well. You know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. I, just, I just really like that page a lot. Um, and they're all holding ultimate nullifiers. Yeah. Or most of them are. We uh, we get breakfast at the Baxter building next. Uh, Reed uh, comes in. You know, he... he uh, Looks like a wreck because, of course, he's been up all night fighting Galactuses. Um, they asked Franklin, you know, his birthday's coming up. What does he want? And he says, "I'd rather have Spider Man for my birthday than Human Torch." And he's gonna, Human Torch is like, is "I'm going to the... tell you something that no one else will." Franklin, Spider Man sucks. <laughs> is, the only thing that was weird about this page is is that the Human Torch or is that Captain America? Because he's like ridiculously built. I mean, that's like way out of proportion for Johnny Storm. Yeah. It just, I don't know, it just seemed kind of odd. And frankly, it tells him, you suck, suck face. <laughs> and then, uh, you yeah. know, sorry, Uncle Suck Face. It just, I just wanted to touch on that because it kind of shows the attention to characterization that Hickman brings here, too. I mean, it's not just big, cosmic, glowy, Kirby Dots uh, fighting stuff. He really t- pays attention to the characters and how they interact. And I love and it, that it, uh, Reed is eating Hulk Smash cereal. I was reading uh, Sewer Alone in the Kitchen, and they have, uh, you know, kind of an, un, an, an awkward uh, conversation, you know. And um, Reed at the end of it says, uh, you know, I'm an expert on many things, but it's you I've studied the most. That's probably the most romantic dialogue I've ever heard come out of Reed Richards' mouth, probably since <laughs> John Byrne was writing it, you know. And then uh, he says, just give him one more week. We then cut to uh, an entire planet that has been turned into an agrar- into a uh, uh, an agrarian experiment by the Reed Richardses. Universe eight nine zero one, the farm. Um, they have hundreds of worlds growing food and and, and helping with starvation and, and you know and trying to. Uh, this is nothing like getting your hands dirty, is there? Businessman Reed says to. And we learn something very important because Reed asks him, "Hey, you've got an Infinity Gauntlet. Why don't you just snap your fingers?" And we learn something that will be again important in this, in FF, in New Avengers, still to this day, and that is an Infinity Gauntlet only works in its own universe. We then cut outside of there; it's just a pretty glove. Right, very important going forward. Um, we then cut to Rasputin Beard Reed, as we said, um, Universe Forty Five. They're taking down a doom, and it turns out no matter you know there are dooms everywhere, and you know they realize that doom will never stop, so they have functionally lobotomized doom, and they keep him in a place called the hole, deep beneath the main council chamber, and Reed immediately says this is wrong, and uh, Rasputin is like a small because he is you know entrusted with hunting down the dooms, the dooms uh, on his earth, a small portion of. Uh, Victor's DNA was spliced together with his, so he has a little doom in him, as he says. There's a joke which is there not one hundred percent true, but uh, 
when we get to that episodes down the line, it's awesome. We then cut to upper dimensional space, universe twelve four nine eight, and uh, I guess start. What is that, Starfleet read? <laughs> yeah, for lack of a better or, term, yeah, yeah or that Avengers read, or I don't know. It's, it's not a, uh, a one I recognize from the Marvel universe, but they're wearing uh, Cyclops glasses and looking down, doing celestial mechanics on a. Uh, you know, they're operating a higher level space, as he says, you know, they're trying to... And Reed has, and our Reed has a robot glove arm thing on, which gives you another action figure costume. Right. <laughs> uh, like we didn't already have enough Reeds uh, to work <laughs> with here. Um, they save a billion lives in, in just a few moments. By performing surgery on a star. Right. In, in higher level space. Um, a, a Starfleet Reed is trying to, uh, you know, he's like, look, do you want to... Do you want to play a superhero for the rest of your life, or do you want to join them and solve everything? And he stops because he knows, you know, that's what he wrote on his wall, solve everything. We then see Reed considering his options. He's laying in bed with Sue on day five, um, and then he gets up in the middle of the night to go back to, to go back down, and then we, uh, we get another flashback of Reed, you know, as a kid with, um, <clears throat> Franklin Richards Sr., um, Nathaniel Richards. Nathaniel Richards. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he says, yeah, they actually think he's cool. And he's like, how does I think that their problem? He's like, they like me, but they're not like me. To which Nathaniel says, you know, no one is. And he says, I don't understand. He tells him there's something special. One day he's going to have the opportunity to help lots and lots of people um, because there's nothing he can't do. And uh, Reed says, you really believe that? And you know, Nathaniel says, son, I know it. And this like, little bit of encouragement that we see here and saw before is essential, as we find out later in the story. I, I know it just seems like some nice, you know, um, uh, um, you know, soft, uh, you know, character building flashback, but it is it is totally essential to what happens later. And we should also mention, uh, you know, side note, but you know, at this time or right around this time, Hickman was also writing Secret Warriors with Nick Fury, which actually does tie into this run a little bit. But he was also writing Shield which ties into kind of this exact time period, at least in parts of it, with this uh, Nathaniel Richards and and why he has to keep leaving and coming back to his to his son and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's it, it, it's it's just nice to see the continuity between those three different books. Right. Like I, I can't remember who it was I was talking to the other day. He just thinks that everything Hickman writes for Marvel is just was part of one larger continuity and it all fits together. Pretty much does. Yeah, no doubt. Um, we go to the council, day six, Reed is, you know, uh, businessman Reed, you've come to a decision. He says, I've weighed all the options. And he says, I, I, I feel I could do the most good with the council. I would like to join if you had me. I believe I belong here. And as, uh, the, as the, um, you know, they, they welcome him in, um, the gateway is breached. The council is compromised. It's the bridge from universe 482, was it 4820? 4280. Uh, what is the meaning of this? Um, and that is the world of the kind of Iron Man read. Right. He says he was sorry, but uh, you know he was wrong. They took me, they tore open his mind. You know, he told them about them, and now they've come here, they plan to take everything. And as we turn the page, we see that they, the ones who ripped open his mind to learn the location of the Council of Reeds, are the Celestials. Yeah. It's so funny because so many writers in Marvel Universe just kind of shy away from the whole... You know, Celestials, Deviants, the whole the whole part of Marvel continuity, and 
we just see Hickman embrace it and like really use it as part of his story. I think it's so awesome. And that uh, that uh, ends five seventy one. So we go into five seventy two, and the uh, where the reeds battle the celestials. Right, and I love the quote here at the on the the cover. I like how they have like a little quote for the issue on the cover above the title. The cost of solving everything is everything. And we'll see what these celestials as they start to talk. Um, a way that they'll talk pretty much whenever Hickman writes them, and I don't think I've seen it before this. But basically, everything they say is uh, it's split like it's been translated, and the words that they're using can mean multiple things. So you'll have like in parentheses, uh, you know, for instance, they say unacceptable. We have removed the and then in parentheses intruder slash animal from our in parentheses, mind slash collective. Right. Like, I really like that way of, it's not an exact translation because they're essentially gods. And they and these ones have gone crazy. They think they are gods. Well, I mean, the the one psychic read tries to, you know, penetrate their mind and his head explodes in a, a cloud of Kirby dots. Um, <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. Well, and, and not even from trying to use his brain, but he goes, oh no, they noticed me. And then it's a laser beam that just explodes his head. They uh they they try to take cover. Reeds are dying left and right. Even they show one that was was liquefied, holding an Infinity Gauntlet. Um, uh, Avengers Reed you know, yells, "Find cover!" Starbrand Reed tries to attack uh, the Celestials. You know, zack him. And we should point out it's businessman and Rasputin who are dead, but Rasputin will be important later right. in the flashbacks. <laughs> they go to the armory. They start to arm up. On uh, the one uh, Reed who is um, dressed like Destiny from the DC universe is basically a uh, a gateway to other universes. I guess that is more Destiny than Cloak, but yeah, uh, yeah. looks like Desaad. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. Desaad. Right. If you had a big book, you'd be Destiny. You know, <laughs> true. But... Reed already knows everything. He doesn't need any big books, and so uh, Starfleet Reed, because he can't use his Infinity Gauntlet because he's not in his own universe, he has. Destiny read, or Desaad read, or whatever read you want to call him, uh, open up the portal to his own universe, to Starfleet's universe, so he can reach his hand in, access the the elements of his own universe, and use the Infinity Gauntlet, which the other read knows will kill him, to let that much power flow through his chest portal, for lack of a better term, but he does it anyway for all of us. And I love this half-splash of him basically just... Energies coming out of every orifice on his head, you know, just kind of emanating as he dies. But uh, Starfleet Reed is able to channel his Infinity Gauntlet through that uh, that portal. Right. Reed basically, um, uh, him and four of the other uh, Reed, which is, you know, it says, you five, get back to your uh, Earths and bring back whatever you can to stop these monsters. Hurry. And Reed barely makes it through the bridge in time. He clicks the button just in time and cuts off the Celestial's hand. In Which, the, unsurprisingly, so will awesome. be important. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that is just so awesome. Right, right. Um, by turning off the bridge the way he does. And I love that the hand is just like literally mere inches away from grabbing him and plucking him back away from the machine, even after it's been cut off. Like, it's just it's just right there on him. Valeria and Franklin are in the lab. They're, they're looking at Reed's lab, and Valeria grabs this uh, shiny gold object uh, Franklin, cool, what is it? And Frank Valeria says, insurance, Franklin. Your horse ready? Then let's go. We don't want to miss our flight. <laughs> and this horse, I, I forget if it was in the beginning of this run or in Dark uh, Rain, but basically Reed says that he repurposed, I think it was two of the Herbies, 
to turn them into a flying hobby horse for Franklin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which gets used later by Bentley and Valeria, right? In FF when they take off. Right, right. Like we keep saying, it's important. Is it on yeah. frame? Is it said? Guess what? I, it's going to be important. Yeah, I, it's so funny because there's so many th- things that would be throwaway in any other comic, but Hickman uses it. He uses it all. Um, Johnny and Ben, and I don't know why if you'd be the Human Torch, you'd wear a shirt with flames on it. I'm sorry. Because he's full of himself? A little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, narcissism. Yeah, no doubt. So they happen one of the fantastic cards. They're off to New World for their vacation. We'll catch up with them next episode. <laughs> um, <clears throat> they hop onto the... Uh, Franklin and Valeria hop onto the hobby horse to go have an adventure. Um, suit. And they hitch a ride on the fantastic card. Right, to follow <clears throat> to follow Ben and Johnny. And then uh, Sue goes down to Reed's lab um, into his white room. And talks to him about how she feels, you know, uh, but, you know, that she believes in him and that she'll be waiting for him when he's done. Through the door, we should say. All of this is being said to the door because she can't even get in because he's deep in thought to keep out. Right, but he's listening. As he's gathering weapons to bring back to the council. Right. Uh, We go the council moments later. Uh, I love this. Ah, nice. Read a universal entropy gun. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, you know, those. Yeah. So they, and Starbrand Reed dies. Again. So sad. <laughs> They're able to hold off the Celestials with the array, uh, array of weapons that they uh, provide. Uh, Starfleet Reed says, you know, you saved his life twice that day. You know, he'll have to owe you. Um, and we learn that the of the five Celestials, the five mad Celestials who are left, uh, all five escaped four to one place and one to another. Right. Guess what? It's going to be important. <laughs> Now these, because uh, my memory's a little shady on where this this all went and how it ended up. These are not the Earth Celestials, right? These are no. These are another... from uh, Iron Man Reed's universe. Okay, all right. Yeah, they they basically just went mad with power, and uh, now they want everything. So uh, Iron Man Visor Reed tells um, our Reed that you know you know Reed's like he's gonna I'm going to go home. He would never leave his family. He would never do that. He doesn't accept that he would, and uh, Iron Man Reed basically tells him, no, uh, you know, Reed, you'll be back. You always come back. All of us, through, you know, every single Reed in the council has left their families because eventually Sue gets fed up with him never being there. The children turn on him. Uh, you know, Ben and Johnny will turn on him, and, you know, it sucks, in those but hey, guess what? We're oh. saving all these worlds. In those universes where there are Sues and Ben Right, and yes, Johnny's. yes. Uh, But basically, the cost of everything is everything. Right. Nothing there. There's no room for anything else. Um, We then have another flashback with uh, Nathaniel and and young Reed. Uh, And now now, uh, Reed is a teenager. Right. And Nathaniel can't be there. And uh, he's trying to tell him there's things he has to do. He doesn't have any choice. Um, If he truly needs him, he'll be around. But, um, and those things he needs to do, if you want to find out about them, read Jonathan Hickman's Shield, because it's awesome. Um, and also they will, okay, guess what, they'll also be important, at least in some regards, later on in this run. Right. And then we cut to Reed in the white room. He says, uh, computer seal and lock the door to the machine, erase the room. And he erases every idea he had on the walls. But he wants to remember one last thing before he goes. And then we cut, as he says, to remember one last thing before he goes, to Nathaniel giving Teenage Reed advice. Um, He points to his head, he goes, but this, and then points to his heart, without this, 
means nothing. The central thesis of this book. And the, the influence of a father telling a son that and teaching that and instilling that into their son. It's, it's uh, His whole monologue is great, but I saw the section of it. It is a terrible thing for someone not to reach their full potential. I know. As I've grown older, I've realized that I do not have the character to be both good and great at the same time. But you do read. And as such, all of my hopes and desires rest in you becoming what I am not. When you grow up, I expect more. Son, I expect better. I want you to be better. Oh, sorry. I forget. It keeps going. I want you to be a better friend than I was, be a better husband, be a better father. Reed, be a better man. As Reed opens the door in his white room and is reunited with Sue. And thus ends the first arc of Hickman's larger, giant, fantastic forest extravaganza. Just so beautiful. I mean, people rag on Hickman being all plot, no character. And while there's certainly less character and more plot in Avengers than there was here... He has such a grasp on their voices and their hopes and dreams and making you care about... Making you care about Reed Richards is not an easy task, and he does it. He's not an easy character to write. He's kind of like um, Cyclops in that regard. You know, it's like some some yeah. writers really yeah. get him and, and understand how to write him and, and what his motivations are, and then others just kind of write him as a jerk and play him that way, you know. Um, but he definitely has a strong voice, I think, for every single you know character in this ensemble. And the, um, I don't know, it's like he lays the foundation down of these few issues that, that just plays out over the, the next few arcs. I would argue, not not to get off track on uh, Fantastic Four, but in, in speaking about Hickman, I would say that Manhattan Projects is another book that there's a ton of character stuff in Manhattan Projects. Oh, absolutely. The plot is, is fun and crazy, but almost inconsequential. Yeah, it's all yeah. about these crazy, evil bastards. I just like the way he's able to tie together the big ideas. I mean, Fantastic Four has always been an adventure and exploration, you know, super science book. And it's cool that he's able to tie those elements together with, like, really well-written characterization, you know. And, and there's a lot of, I, I would say, homage in this book or a lot of reverence for Kirby. I mean, you know, Eagle Sham on the art, there's tons of Kirby dots everywhere. There's, you know, Celestials, there's crazy you know machines and gadgets and weapons and characters but not, um, not only kirby course... i would say not only kirby but like almost all of marvel continuity i mean like star brand sure. like you said you know yeah. are you re- referencing that or referencing you know all the different you know throwaway things that go on you're using captain universe in his avengers run you know he's just like i said he's like one of those writers like jeff johns or whatever just is really no, not only knows all the continuity, but knows how to use it well. Kurt Busiek is like that, too. That yeah. Hey, remember X thing? That was cool. Why didn't anybody do anything with it? Well, guess what? I'm going to. <laughs> or, hey, remember that thing that could have been cool but wasn't? Guess what? I'm going to do something awesome with it. Mm-hmm. I, I think this concept, maybe not for a first movie, because you really don't, you really wouldn't know Reed as a character after the first movie. And maybe maybe a second movie, but I think definitely if if they ever get that far for a third movie, but having Reed, go, you know, build this bridge and see other versions of himself and just, I think that would make for a pretty interesting and compelling movie. I, I think I think you could do some really you know really cool and interesting stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess I, I heard that the uh, the villain for the this new FF movie is supposed to be Annihilus. So, I mean, if they build a, huh. a portal to the negative zone and have that as part of the plot, it wouldn't be too big of a jump for him to 
you know, be able to see alternate realities. And it's a concept everybody knows. I mean, from Fringe and sure. Star Trek and everything else, it's been, it's been sold to the public already. Well, and they brought him into the cartoons a lot. You know, if you're trying to, you know, keep that relationship that, you know, children would have to these characters, that would, you know, if they saw something like that, it wouldn't be, you know, completely way out in left field, too. Right. Well, do we have anything else to say about these first two volumes of the run, gentlemen? Just awesomeness. Like I said, I, <laughs> I uh, I'm really upset with myself for not having read that Dark Rain uh, mini because it was just, I mean, the art, the story, the the concepts, and then having read, uh, like I said, the first six or eight issues or so of of the main FF run, not having read that, I mean, this that's definitely like essential required reading for for this arc. I mean, to see how he builds the bridge and the and you know just what he was aiming to get at with that. Um, it, you know, you're missing a pretty vital piece of this, of the story, um, which I, I, you know, I think that's maybe where dark rain got kind of a bad rap because it wasn't like an event event. So there were all these kind of spinoff books. And I think by that time people had gotten maybe burnt out on trying to read spinoff stuff. And, uh, you know, so, so that, you know, I think some of these books might've suffered from that because there were a ton of these little dark rain minis. I mean, there were, there were just a bunch of them. And then the list, and, too, at well, the end. Yeah, but plus it was event after event after event. It was Civil War, Secret Invasion. Yeah. People were kind of getting... That was like the first wave of event fatigue, you know? And this is early Hickman, too. You know, I mean, what's it's so funny. This is only just a couple few years ago, but this isn't, uh, you know, Hickman of 2013, 2014. This is, you know, Hickman of, you know, I guess, what is this, 2012, 2011, which it, it sounds, sounds kind of silly, but... Um, he was the new kid he, on the block. Yeah, yeah, to to some degree. I mean, you know, he especially in the on the Marvel side of the fence. Um, but you know, so I think I think that has a, a lot. Oh, this is two thousand nine, so I guess it goes further back than we thought. You know, so so definitely a different landscape with him as an as a premier Marvel artist. Uh, you know, four almost five years ago than than today. So, um. You know, just again another reason why it would be easy to kind of overlook what was, you know, you know that Dark Rain mini. So, right. But now you know, ladies and gentlemen, why it's so important. Yeah. So if there's nothing else, you can leave us a voicemail at nine seven two seven nine eight thirty eight thirty. That's nine seven two seven nine eight three eight three zero, or send us an email lod at hhwlod dot com. Check out all of our great shows at hhwlod.com, like Half Hour Wasted, Walking Dead TV Podcast, At Now with Aaron and Abe, Jersey Shore, Shaken Not Stirred, our new uh, James Bond podcast, and a whole bunch of other great stuff. Uh, coming up in Fantastic February, not only are we going to be continuing to cover the Hickman F4 and FF run, but we're also going to be looking at, on uh, Real Heroes, one of our other shows, the Corman Fantastic Four movie. Oh, man. <laughs> yes. Have you guys watched it yet? Have you, have you watched it yet? I, I have not yet. I have not watched it for the purposes of the show, where I've you know kind of taken my detailed notes. I've seen it uh, twice before, but it's been many years. So, uh, yeah, I, I think as we record this, I'll probably watch it this coming weekend. I, I think we're going to shoot for next week to to try and record that. But I think it'll be a lot of fun. I just, I really do. I, th I think. Uh, yeah, I, I just I look forward to it. 
And you can follow us on Twitter at LOD Tweet and at HHWLOD underscore network. I'm at Jordan FRM Jersey. Jim is at Yoda Jones. And Russ is at R Latham, L A T H A M. And uh, we hope you come back and rejoin us for Fantastic February. Have a great week, everybody. So long. Fantastic. <laughs> Stop recording. Now the dude's so fucking hey, what do you think? What is it called? It's called a lakeside stand.